I'll figure it out is how I've always thought about things. I, I don't have a lot of confidence going into something other than knowing that the confidence is I will figure it out. And if I don't, again, I'm not putting myself at risk. So it's okay. And so it's a couple of those things together that gives me the confidence to, to try something new. want to tell you, I have a lot of mixed emotions talking to you right now. So I'm going to just try and be chill here. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm inspired by you. I'm intimidated by you. And Don't I be. have to just confess something. A lot of my thinking has been directly a lift from what you've written in your books. So when, you, when I don't know how it happened, when we exchanged information, I was like, I can't believe we're even going to talk right now. So I'm no. like, whew, deep breath. All right. So a lot of admiration here. Well, I have loads of respect for what you're doing and, and I wish I was as good as you at what you do. So please, um, we're just two people talking here okay. who both uh, are maybe good at something. <laughs> we're good at something, I think. Yeah, let's hope okay. so. <laughs> um, now this might be crazy, but in case somebody doesn't know who you are, can you introduce yourself and then tell us a little story about who you are? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Jason Freed and I started a company almost 23 years ago, originally called 37 Signals. And you just interviewed one of my co-founders, Carlos Segura, a few weeks ago, I think it was. And um, we were a web design company and we were doing that for a number of years. And then we got pretty busy and we couldn't manage all the work we were doing with the tools that we were using. So we ended up building this thing called Basecamp that ultimately became a big deal for us. But at the time we didn't, we didn't have any idea it was going to be anything. Um, and I can get into some of the details, but we built that, launched that in 2004. And then from about a year later, we stopped doing client work and have been doing software ever since. We've launched a bunch of products since then. But yeah, so the company today is called Basecamp, although we started out as 37 Signals. And now we make Basecamp and we make something called Hey, H-E-Y.com, which is a new email service we just launched a couple of years ago. And that's uh, who we are. We've written a few books and done some other stuff, but that's, uh, that's the quick summary. Wow. Okay. Very succinct. I love where this is going. Um, and even in that little quick introduction, I've got even more questions. I got my questions on the side here. So let's see how this goes. Okay. You are doing what I think every creative person wants to do in that they can leave client work behind. I would just love to ask you like what that transition was like from doing service work. And then now you're, you are your own boss. You're writing your own story. Yeah. It was unintentional, but probably secretly desired. You know, uh, we were doing client work. Well, I was doing client work ever since I was in college, which is, I graduated college in 96. And about 95, the internet sort of kind of came around the internet that we know it, the visual internet when like Mosaic was launched. So this mm -hmm. is way back, way back when. Anyway, I, I always started doing freelance work. I actually did some work before that, like just doing logos and stuff like that for some friends. But I'd been doing client work for since, you know, the mid nineties. And, um, then we launched 37 signals and we were doing client work and, and client work is, is it's, it's good and it's bad. You know, it's great in that, um, you get to do new things all the time. You get to take on problems that you don't have yourself. So you get to like learn about other businesses and, and do work that you wouldn't be able to do for yourself and to do some work that's really high profile and some work that's really personal. And, and, you know, you get to do a lot of different things, 
But then, of course, you know, you don't really, really ever get to do exactly what you want because you have a client who's paying you and they and they're they're hiring you to do something for them. Sometimes you can get that perfect client that lets you do exactly what you want. Um, but, you know, we decided to make the software for ourselves. And we didn't, again, we didn't know that it was going to replace client work for us. It was just something we were actually building to do client work better, to stay more organized, to keep everyone on the same page, to have all feedback in one central place so we knew who said what, when, and who was promising what, and who was working on what, and deadlines, and all tasks, and all that stuff. And it just turned out that that product, as we started using it with our clients, they kept saying, what is this thing that you're using? Like, we have projects too. Can we, what is this? And, and we said, it's just this thing we, you know, we built for ourselves. Eventually, light bulb goes on over your head. You're like, there's an idea here. There's a product here. Turned it into a product, threw some prices on it, put it out in the market, not knowing what was going to happen. And then about a year or so later, it was generating more revenue for us than our client work was. So at that point, we decided to go all in on software because we got to be our own client. You're always working for a client. <laughs> it's either <laughs> someone else or you, but you you still have things that you want to do. So you're always working for a client. And we just decided to work for our, ourselves, our client. We wanted to be our own client. Mm -hmm. But that was only possible because we had something else that was able to pay our way, basically. I would not advocate like basically going cold turkey, like dumping or dropping something and then starting something up from scratch with, with no safety net. I'm not, I don't like that. So it's sort of a gradual transition over a period of a year or so until we felt comfortable and confident enough that we could do this. That's the PSA part in case you're thinking about dumping your very profitable business. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> that was the warning there. Be careful. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm curious about this because we've gone through this process ourselves recently, which is when you make that transition from being a service company to a product company, the culture has to change, the mindset has to change. And I found that in our own transition, it wasn't so easy for about 50% of the people. They really were other motivated where they could show up every single day as long as they know here's the brief, here's the client goals, and they would do that. But when we turned over into being like we're now our own boss and our own client, they, they didn't know what to do anymore. They weren't the autonomous people that I thought they were. So not everybody made it. I'm just curious what your experience was like. We were lucky because we were only five people when we made the decision to switch. Mm. So it was, yeah, there's five of us at the time. So we were all on board, you know, but I think if we right now we're, you know, in the fifties of people and if we decide to completely change our business model right now, it would be much, much, much harder. And um, this is something we've talked about in our books, this idea of mass. The more massive, and this is just physics, the more massive an object, the more energy it takes to change its direction. And a company with a lot of people or a long history and, and legacy of, of doing something a certain way, you know, when that company wants to change, it's very, very hard. So yeah, I, I don't, you know, you know, I don't have advice um, around like how to, how to really change a bigger company because that's just a, a totally different thing. But I would say if you were to do it, I'd probably do it rel relatively slowly or spin up one group inside of an organization to begin the change versus trying to change everything and everyone at once, which is just a really hard thing to do. I'm a big fan of gradual changes that become obvious eventually versus uh, knowing that something's going to work for sure. I, I, I don't, I never know what's going to work. You just kind of make your way there until it either works or it doesn't, but you don't put yourself at risk. The way I think about this is 
there's a big difference between taking a risk and putting yourself at risk. So we try not to put ourselves at risk, meaning that if whatever we're going to do instead doesn't work, we haven't just sunk the whole thing. Mm. Our risks are calculated and and they're they're gradual so we can pull back if things aren't working or we can go forward if they are. But I, I don't like to make bet the company decisions. So I would recommend against that generally and f- sort of find your way there over time. Yeah. So I noticed this uh, in, in doing that exact plan. There's the main company that's making the money. And then there's a small group led by me. When I say small, two people, me and an assistant trying to build this other company, this other idea. And I couldn't help but to deal with the the culture shift and the observation that, hey, where the boss's attention is going, if we're not on that train or that boat, it's probably a bad sign for us. And so they can see that and they're not, they're not dumb people, obviously. Um, how do you, how do you process that? How do you talk to the team about that? That's a really good observation because even if you don't want it to look that way, it looks that way. Right. Right. You know, whoever's in charge of something where their focus is, is sort of where everyone assumes the important stuff is. And if you're not on that boat, then, you know, what am I doing? Or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think we have this too, uh, when we go off and decide to build a new product, you know, we have Basecamp, which has been around for, for 17 years and is a, is a really strong, um, deep product. It's been around for a long time, has lots and tens of thousands of companies that pay for it. That's our bread and butter. That allows us to do some other things. And when we shift our attention, typically when we build new products, me and David, who's my business partner, will usually maybe pull one other person in and we'll do the explorations on the new product. And so we're not on the main thing for a while. And, you know, you can imagine people wondering, well, is this main thing important anymore or what? The thing is with us as a company is that we don't have anyone dedicated just to certain parts of the business. We have, you know, different people in different roles. So if you're in customer service, you do that. If you're a designer, you do this. If you're a programmer, you do this. Ops, you do that. But what I mean is that everybody works on all the products. So, for example, when we were building Hay, people who were working on Basecamp previously knew they would ultimately be working on Hay also once we got it somewhere. So it wasn't like they were being left behind and only focused on this other thing. They knew that they too would transition if the company transitioned. So I think that's an important thing, at least for us, how we've done it, which is that um, everybody gets to move back and forth and work on different products. So right now we're working on Hay and Basecamp simultaneously. And this cycle, we work in what we call six-week cycles. This cycle, you might be working on Hay. Next cycle, you might be working on Basecamp. So it's not that you're ever left behind or that you're ever pulled along. We just are constantly shifting. But also communicating clearly to the group, like, look, right now, a few of us are going to focus on something else for a while to explore it. It's an exploratory exercise. It's quite risky. We don't know if it's going to work. So it's not even a great place to be. It's more maybe more exciting because it's on the forefront or something or pioneering something new, but it also could fall flat. Right. So, you know, I think you have to communicate that and then um, and recognize that everyone's going to come along for the ride if we find out that there's somewhere to go. Mm. That makes a lot of sense as you're going from product to product. I guess the struggle for me was there's a service company and a product company or an education company that they could just not even figure out. It looks like the boss is going to do something crazy, having a midlife crisis or something. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I could be objective about looking at it. This is crazy thing that makes no money. Yeah. That'll take years to develop and that there's no guarantees of outcomes, but all the attention, at least from my point of view, was directed there. And so that, that did cause some real concern. I can see that. I yeah. think that's, it's a natural human response too. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, one way to put it is that the other part of the business, the traditional part of the business is the engine. 
if it didn't exist, we couldn't do these other things. So it is actually the most important part of the business. Right. Because it fuels explorations in other directions. But naturally, you're still going to have just some of the, the, the human stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. am I working on the latest and greatest? Is, am I, do I get to work with the person who maybe I came here to work with? Well, maybe not for a while. Are we jettisoning our old stuff? Or is, mm-hmm. are we going to do both? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to transition? And it's, it's the unknown, I think, makes people feel uncomfortable. So I think the more you can explain sort of why you're doing this and where you're headed and what this is all about, and it can be, you know, about stability. We want to have multiple revenue streams or we just feel like we want to go in a different direction. Here's why. You just have to explain and be clear about it as clear as you can. And also recognize that people are still going to feel perhaps a bit left out or nervous that they're not on the other boat at the moment. But I don't know if there's much you can ultimately do about that other right. than to be upfront and clear and transparent about it as best you can. Right. This is what's hard about organizations. This is what hard, it's hard about people. This is what's hard about companies. The work is always challenging, but really it's, it's managing people that's, I think, the hardest part of it all. <laughs> if you ever work with people, especially creative people, you know the pain of this. It's never that straightforward. Yeah. We're emotional. We're irrational. Uh, we, we fall to some of our uh, worst selves sometimes about jealousy and uh, whatever it is, insecurities, and sometimes communication can handle that. Being transparent, as you said, will help with that, but it's still going to exist as long as you work with people with real emotions, right? Yeah. You know, one thing we, yes, and we all have it. Yeah. Um, it's not like they have it or it's, <laughs> we have it. It's just, we all have it. Yeah. One thing we do, we try to do is when we're working on something new, like an exploration for a new product is we, we will try to, sh- not super early. This is actually a good topic, by the way, around feedback and getting more eyes on something and when you want to do that, because I don't believe you want to do it too early. I think some people feel like you want to get a lot of eyes on things early. I, I, I think it's really good to protect something early for a while because it's really fragile and there's a lot to go into there. But what we do is when we get to a point where we feel like we've got something we're particularly excited about, we'll just begin sharing that throughout the company just so people can see what we're doing over there. It's like, what are you doing over there? Well, here's what we're doing. And I think once you begin to share it, people then begin to feel like they're part of it. If you just are totally secretive about it, and I know there's probably some examples like you can imagine with Apple when they were making the iPod, they couldn't show anybody anything. There's right. only 10 people. Okay, but you're not Apple and <laughs> and I'm not Apple and it's okay. Like, you know, we're not. So you show you show early versions of things when you get to a place. And you, if you don't want feedback, you can say that too. Go, hey, I'm not sharing this to get anyone's opinion. I just want to show you what we're doing over mm. here so you have a sense. And just set the expectations. But I think people appreciate being able to see what you're doing over there. That's mm. a big part of it. Yeah, that's a great tip to include people, but also say I'm not necessarily looking for your feedback here. I just want to be inclusive. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I, I'm, I think... I get this feeling from you that this is one of your philosophies, which is to do less but better. So I'm just curious. Um, I've seen 37 signals expand in products and then shrink back down. And then here you are talking about another company, another idea, another product. If, If we don't want to add things to our plate, then what is the genesis or catalyst for you to say, I got a new itch. I have an observation or something is going on here that I'd like to explore. How do you how do you manage that? Terribly, <laughs> because this is what happened. You know, we, 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 we said like, this is about, I think six or seven years ago, we're like, okay, we're just going to go all in on Basecamp. We're yeah. going to rename the company mm-hmm. from 37 signals to Basecamp, which is going to signal the fact that we're just focused on one thing and one thing's enough. We're going to do our best work on our best product we've ever made. 
And you do that for a while and you inevitably have a million other ideas, but you always do. And then every once in a while, one idea just won't leave. It won't leave you. And this email thing wouldn't leave us. So we use Basecamp to run our whole business, all of our internal communication, all of our project management, all of our vendor stuff. But we also use email for the outside world. So when we're, when we're communicating with lawyers or accountants or, or the public or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, we, we use email. And so since we're tool builders and we want to build our own tools and we've already built our own work tool on, on the Basecamp side, we want to build our own email tool because that's what the other thing that we're in most of the day. And we just couldn't stop exploring this idea once we started getting somewhere with it. However, the initial idea for, for Hey, which is sort of what we're talking about, was actually redoing a product we built earlier called HiRise. We started exploring CRM and stuff. We wanted to see if we could do a new version of that, but we just had this itch to do something else. And one of the reasons why was because we realized that we become a more innovative company when we do at least two things. And I think we started feeling ourselves going down a narrower path wasn't allowing us to be as creative as we wanted. Because when you work on something that's been around for a while, there's a lot of uh, sort of legacy um, limitations. You can't really explore a lot of brand new things because people are already used to a certain way and a certain thing. And so when you do a new product, you have a chance of starting from scratch. And that idea, those ideas fuel then your other thing. And you kind of go back and forth. We're calling this we kind of call it internally TikTok development, like tick over here, talk over there, back and forth and back and forth. And so now we brought a bunch of the ideas from Hay into Basecamp when we're bringing stuff from Basecamp into Hay. And now we're able to like play a little bit more and have a little bit more flexibility and freedom to, to explore things and not say, well, this is so, this doesn't fit into Basecamp, so we're not going to explore it, but now we can. So, I, I, but you know, here, here, the truth is we're actually going to explore two more products too, at least. So we have two more product ideas. And now that we've sort of torn the lid off or, or ripped the bandaid off or something, I think we're going to go back to what well, we already are with Basecamp and Hey, but we want to go back to being a multi-product company that's beyond even just two products. So we're going back to the beginning, mm. back to the basics, or well, not really the basics, but back to the original thing, which was build the kind of things we want to see exist in the world and not limit ourselves to, to some artificial limitation that we had. And let's see what we can build. If we have an idea, let's, let's explore it. And some of these ideas may go nowhere, but we're not going to say we're not doing it anymore. So that's the new revision. And I feel like 23 years in, it's sort of fun to uh, say, well, what if we stopped doing things the way we were doing them? Why not just do it a new, a new way? Right. For now, for the next six years or 10 years. I don't know. You just get that degree of comfort and, co and confidence when you've been around for a while. And it's a good reminder, though, to change because the longer you're around, the more calcified you become and you kind of get stuck in your ways. And this is a way to break out of that. Mm, I love that. The other thing I will say, though, is that specifically one of the reasons why we cut back on our products was because we didn't want to grow bigger. We wanted to keep the company as small as we possibly could. That was just something we've always wanted to do in terms of, of people because we wanted to know everyone's name and want to just have a very small business culture. And we decided recently that, you know what? Um, we don't want that limitation on us anymore. And therefore we can hire more people so we can do more things. We couldn't do more things with a really small crew, but now that we're willing to get bigger, we can do more things. And so we sort of took that limitation off 
we're not getting to a thousand people, but maybe we'll get to a hundred people or 120 people. Like if we had that, if we had a more capable company, what could we build? And that's sort of our current mindset. Ooh, there's a lot there. Okay. I'm just curious when you said that sometimes you need to do two things because they inform each other. Is this kind of in, in a, an alignment with this idea that sometimes when you're staring at a problem so much, it's hard to think of it in, in new and innovative ways. But as soon as you start looking at something else, working on that, and then all of a sudden your, your thinking opens up and these ideas then inform the previous company and that interplay between the two. Yes. And I'll go broader than that too, okay. which is um, when I look for inspiration, I don't look at my own industry because looking at my own industry is like looking at your own product in a sense. If you just look at your own industry, you tend to sort of do what everyone else is doing. And so when I'm looking for design inspiration, I look towards architecture or I look towards gardening or I look towards, you know, well, or, or like plants and flowers or animals. I look at other things. If I'm trying to figure out what colors work, I look outside. I don't look at other products and see what everyone, other, what colors people are using or what palettes this app has or what. I look outside because nature's always got it figured out. Nothing in nature looks bad. You know, so I'll look there or if I want to get a sense of like how something feels, I'll go walk into a beautiful building and, and, and think about why is this building beautiful? Why does it feel good? What's good about it? Is it the textures? Is it the way materials come together? Is it the scale? Is it proportion? Is it the setting? What is it? And that's the kind of stuff that just gets me to think about software in a strange way because it's unrelated to software. If you were really to really like lay it out, it's unrelated, but it's also very related and that it's about space and function and feeling and all those things. So, so I think that's, you know, part of the reason of having two things is to, is to be able to see a different perspective and try something else, but also broader getting away from your own thing. And, then, and I'm going to broaden that out to my own industry and look at other sort of related kind of things to get ideas. That's, that's how I've always found. Um, Cause I remember when I was coming up initially, you know, I would always look at like communication arts, you know, the, 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 the yeah. print, um, you know, or, or, or print actually was another one where, mm -hmm. where you have like business cards and letterhead. And, and I got, I got ideas from that early on. I remember it, but what I was getting when I was early on, I was getting ideas for things I wanted to copy. And I found that the more I looked at my own industry or similar things, actually the less creative I felt myself being, I felt myself becoming a good copier, which was a good thing, good way to learn initially. Like how could I recreate that or how could I make that? But I, I wasn't coming up with my own ideas until I got away from my own industry and looked at other things and then tried to figure out how to incorporate those back into the work that I was doing. So that I think is a related point to to the to the point you brought up about having two products and taking one thing from another. Mm -hmm. Thank you for expanding on that. And I, I talk about this with my design students back when I was teaching in art school, is that creativity is your ability to find a connection between two or more disparate things. And the farther apart those two things are, the more we're going to say that's really creative. Mm. When you can bring in something just totally like a non sequitur, non related thing, and you bring it into your thinking. That is where people are like, wow, that is crazy, cool, unique, interesting. Whereas if you just look at design in the industry that you're in, then it becomes kind of very, um, I guess it's like you just regurgitating an idea and putting a slightly new coat of paint on it, but it's really the same idea seen over and over again. And, and thanks, thanks for, uh, for opening that up. Yeah. Like for example, on my desk right now, I have like rocks that I've collected 
there, there's nothing special about the rocks other than I like the way they look. And, and the textures and the colors and the shadows and the shapes and the proportions, I just, I don't, I don't know what it does to me, but I like having them around me. And I feel like whenever I'm working on a design or something, I, I tend to look at the rocks mm. and go like, why does that work? Why does that rock work? Aesthetically, at least mm-hmm. for me. And this is, a, all, of course, always a purely subjective thing. There's no objective thing probably here. Um, or like ceramics is something I really like. And there's a few artists I really like. And um, I'll have their stuff around. And it just, it helps me think about proportion and color and shape and size. And I don't know, it just, it gets me going versus looking through, looking at other apps or looking through a book of of, uh, of design stuff, you know? Right. Um, it's one of the reasons I love furniture so much. Furniture mm-hmm. is another one of those things that like, I just look at that and I get ideas from it. Mm-hmm. Are these uh, just... I don't want to go too far on this, but are these fancy rocks or are these just rocks you found while walking? These are, I'll just get one for you. Even though I think our viewers probably won't see it, but it's just like, oh. this is a rock I found <laughs> on the beach. Yeah, it's got some holes in it. It's got some holes in it, but yeah. it's like, I, I just, I like the way it looks. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, there's just yeah. a lot of textures and shadows and and like, there's a lot of, there's some really interesting lines on it. I don't I know. It's just that. Okay. And then I'll, then I'll also have... Um, I have this, which is like a, called a desert rose, Whoa. which is a neat thing. Um, I didn't find this. I bought this. It's, you know, it was like $10. It's mm. a fancy thing, but I just like, I just liked it. Yeah. And um, I don't know, you know, it's really so, unique. Yeah. It's just having like stuff like that around that, mm-hmm. you know, or designed objects, you know, whatever. But, but again, I'm not, I'm trying not to look at software when I build software. That's kind of the point I'm trying to get at. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. And, and for the people who are listening to this, what was the second Rocky held up? It looked like a bunch of like tumbleweed glued together, but out of stone. Yeah. I think it's called Desert Rose. I think if you look it up, oh. Desert Rose Rock Desert or something Rose. like that, you'll see it. Yeah. Okay. The reason why I asked you if it's like a fancy rock, because I imagine like, I don't know if they're called, are they crystals or like when I go into fancy people's homes, they have rocks that are cut in half and there's like crazy colors in them that are brilliant. And I just think, wow, nature has its way. It's so incredible. That's that's kind of what I imagine. I'm glad to kind of see it. it's like these are very earthy and natural looking. Yeah, yeah. These aren't yeah. those. Um, I think they're called geodes or something. Geodes, the ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't have those. It's not. It's not like a crystal thing. It's more like just. <laughs> I saw something on the beach that I thought was beautiful, and yeah. and I picked it up and I brought it, put it in my backpack, and brought it home. You know. Um, mm-hmm. But those things are beautiful too, and I'll I'll love to go to those kinds of whenever I see a store like that that has yeah. like those natural big things that you'll walk through it because you're like. The geometry and the colors and the fact that these these some of these designs are are locked inside of something else and yeah you weren't really meant to ever see them and it just mm-hmm. it's beautiful I don't know um I also I, I love birds I love looking at birds for colors especially um, one of my favorite birds is this bird called the cedar waxwing and if you look up the cedar waxwing and you look at it it's just beautiful the colors are so unexpected. And the way they blend into themselves, it's just stunning. And and um, I know I get ideas from from birds uh, and from colors in, in nature. <laughs> I, I guess the lesson to learn here is that there's so much more you can draw inspiration from if you're willing to look and pay attention. Yes, I, and and it's everywhere. You don't need to go far. You just walk outside and, mm-hmm. and look around and. And um, I, I, another thing I, I like to look at really closely are leaves and, and flowers and 
there's just, a, I mean, if you look at a flower from afar, it, it's beautiful. But when you get up close, it's even more beautiful because you see a lot of intricacies and little, little sometimes like multiple shapes, um, almost a fractal thing going on. And they're very delicate, but they're, they're just incredibly beautiful and intricate and ornate. And you see colors blending into other colors and it just, they always work. You'll never find a flower that doesn't work aesthetically. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a thing, which is an incredible notion in itself that there can actually be something that always works somehow. I don't know how, but it, it just, it's, they're, they're beautiful. So anyway, I'll, I'll look at that kind of stuff. And uh, now I'm sort of belaboring the point, but um, yeah, there's inspiration everywhere. And, and I would encourage people to look far outside their own industry and their own trade for it. Okay. I'd like to take you back to something that you had said, because I think it's the beginning of something else, but I'm not sure. I, I'm, I, I'm suspicious. Like, uh, I don't know who said this, but they, I, I heard it from Blair Enns, who said all strategy is autobiographical. And it made me think like, is that true? I guess it is. And so when I listen to you and I connect them to the book, it just makes perfect sense because everything you say, everything that seems to be like how you're guiding your thought and your words is reflected in the book. Like when you said at the beginning, there wasn't a grand plan. And in the book and rework, you write planning is guessing. And it's just by listening and keeping things small, uh, you're able to kind of not feel the pressure of doing so much at the same time. So just keeping things super simple. And you talk about mass, but now you're talking about potentially growing the company, getting to multiple products and maybe disrupting your own way of thinking. So I'm wondering if the next book will be called something like with re in front of it, but maybe it'll be like rethink. So you challenging yourself. It's, it's really funny that you mentioned that because, because David and I have been talking a bit about that, that this, Mm -hmm. this just feels like a moment for us to um, reconsider um, oh. is really the way I was thinking about it. Um, yeah. re- reconsider a lot of assumptions, um, mm-hmm. preconceived notions, and, um, and recognize that we're in a fortunate position where we can build a business, uh, try something else. And it's still the same thing fundamentally. We're not talking about, we're not raising outside money. We're not, you know, trying to be a unicorn. We're not, none of that stuff. This is like one step away from where we are today, but just becoming a more capable company. And that requires us to reconsider a number of things in terms of hiring middle management. We need to bring in some more managers. Um, We need to bring in some more leadership that's more strategic minded versus just individual contributors. We've primarily hired individual contributors over the years. And now we want to hire some people who are coming into leadership roles um, from the start. And it's scary and unknown. And some days you're like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And and other days you're like, I'm so glad we're doing this. And we're in the middle of it. So I don't know how it's going to turn out. But it's kind of like, why not try this now? We've been doing this for a long time. We know how to run a business the other way or the way we've been doing it. Now let's challenge ourselves to do it a little bit differently. And we know we can do it because we've done it before. We used to have four products and we had four products with like a team of 12. So certainly we can have multiple products with a team of 80, um, even though things are harder today because now you have mobile apps to do. You've got more stuff that you need to build, higher expectations, more platforms to cover, but we should absolutely be able to do this. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, I think, I think the book would probably be, you know, reconsider, um, or like re rework was another topic, another <laughs> title. We don't have a book in mind yet, you know, but, um, or reworked, you know, I, I don't know. There's, there's, it's exciting to think that 
in a few years, we'll be able to reflect probably on the right. changes we're, we're making now and, and take some lessons. So part of the reason why you might find some continuity between the book and what I'm saying is because the book is based on on what, what we've done and what we think. It's not uh, uh, theoretical. It's very practical. And so we can only write another book once we have enough lessons that we've built up and experiences that we've had, and then we then put them down on paper. So we're not predicting where we're going to head. It's actually a summary of where we've been. And um, we'll see when the next one comes out. If we ever do another one, it'll probably be about this transitional period right now. Right. So this will serve as an interesting uh, time capsule or timestamp on your thinking. And and I, I get that. Like the, the the books are reflecting back what has worked and what what uh, what you align with. So if that changes, then it would make sense then for you to release that book because people wonder like, okay, so they're doing things differently now. And we're curious as to how they got here. And then you, you can tell that story, right? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that could be the plan. We, so we don't set out initially to decide to write books, but right. often what ends up happening is we come up with a title for one mm. and then we have to do it because <laughs> we like, like the name. <laughs> I'll yeah. do the same thing with product design. Whenever I come up with a product name, so for I'll give you like an example. So we're um, we're we're thinking about building a, a calendar, uh, a new calendaring system, um, which is going to be more than just a calendar, but um, you know, be related to Hey, our email thing, because email and calendar seem to go go together. But also, it will probably stand alone. Um, by the way, I'm sharing things that like are not solidified yet, so please, no one quote me on this, but. <laughs> This is what we're thinking about. And I came up with this name, Heyday, which mm. is like the perfect name for a calendar in my mind for that's related to the product called Hey, and also there's something more to it. And now like, I almost feel like we must do it because we have a good name for it. Mm. Now, that's not the only reason to do it, but that's one of the things that gets me excited is, is a good name for something. But yeah, I, I think... Um, I, I think the plan will be to reflect back on this period of time in a few years and see if there's anything new to say. And if there isn't, there won't be a book. If there is, there will be. And I think what's interesting about this period of time in the company's history is that it's growing is challenging. We have to do a bunch of things we've never done before. And most of these things are things that we've railed against in the past. So you have to fight your own religion in a sense and, right. and get past that. And that's I, I find that to be really exciting, but it can also be really hard because sometimes you do something and you're like, we're not supposed to do that. Well, like, who said that? Well, we said that. Well, if we said it, we, we can say something else, you know, like it's our own, you, you fight your own <laughs> rules that you set up for yourself. And then you have a, you, you have this expectation to live up to your, your past because you want to be consistent. But like, I'm much more interested in, in context than consistency and context. The context today is different than it was before. So let's do something different and not worry too much about it. Anyway, these are these, these, these thoughts that float around in your head. And, and I think, I've always taken comfort in the fact that I don't really know what I'm doing, but I plan on figuring it out. That's just how I, I like, I'll figure it out is how I've always thought about things. I, I don't have a lot of confidence going into something other than knowing that the confidence is I will figure it out. And if I don't, again, I'm not putting myself at risk, so right. it's okay. And so it's a couple of those things together that gives me the confidence to, to try something new. Mm. Well, either way, I'm I'm curious to wherever that takes you because it will either confirm like, nope, the original philosophy and religion was really solid, even though we tried to break it ourselves or, hey, you know what? Sometimes it works like this and sometimes it works like some, some other way and everybody find your own way. Yes, which, which is something I really appreciate. I think in the interview you did with Carlos, 
he was talking about how I think he thinks like advice is bullshit or so, something like that. This idea that like mm-hmm. everyone's situation is so different, timing, context, other situational uh, variables, luck. So like giving advice is, I mean, I, I give it, <laughs> but but I, I what I really am trying to say, like this is what's worked for me. I don't know what's going to work for you. I don't know what's going to work for the future version of us even. I don't know. But you, you know, you got to pick a direction and go with it and see what happens. But yeah, I think uh, I think that's uh, that's a good observation. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation. I'd like to make a, a hard pivot right now and talk a little bit about how you wrote the blueprint for 2020 and 2013 in the book Remote. Oh, and. It's really interesting because I did not read it in 2013, but we've been living some of those philosophies. And when I read it, kind of like, oh my God, this is the way. And we've seen what has happened to, to businesses all over the world because of, of COVID. And you, you wrote this idea that there's a bunch of things in the book, but about decentralizing your office, your operation to prevent it from catastrophic failure if one system goes down. And you're making a case for distributing the workload across people uh, and, and allowing people to work remotely. Um, and I'm just curious about your thoughts, having written that in 2013 and seeing the, the just the economic devastation, not even to talk about the, the health impact that COVID has made. But I'm just curious, like seven years prior to this happening, you already kind of wrote about it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, obviously we never could have predicted this. Mm-hmm terrible couple of years. Um, but, but remote working ultimately is about building resilience in an organization, the ability to work from anywhere, anytime and hiring people from all over the place. And remote working is not just working locally far away or far apart. It's actually a, a fundamentally different approach to work. It's a more trustworthy way of working. It's more about asynchronous communication than real time, especially as you go across time zones you can't have real-time conversations with people who are seven times. I mean, you can, but it's much harder to synchronize schedules that way. And people end up working longer and later because you're pulling people into conversations when it's nighttime for them. And it's a very unhealthy approach. So I think there's a lot of good fundamental ideas behind remote work, even if you're working locally um, to, to work asynchronously and to trust people more. But, but it is about resiliency. And I think that what ended up happening here with COVID is that a lot of companies found that they weren't that resilient and that if their office you know, went away, they would be scrambling and they wouldn't know how to work. If they only relied on in-person meetings and they thought there was no other way to work than that, and they couldn't have them all of a sudden, they were, they were caught flat-footed and didn't know what to do. And so remote working just gives you another option. Um, that's at the fundamental level. But the other thing that's great about remote working is you get to hire people all over the world and you're not limiting yourself to hiring people just, you know, within 30 miles of your zip code or your your home office or your 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 office or whatever. You can hire incredibly great people all over the place and they are everywhere. There, there's a tendency in the tech industry to fight all over the same people, um, that there's this talent war for whatever, for the best 50 or whatever. I don't know, I, I don't buy it. I mean, of course there's incredible people and there's, there's a top 100 people, whatever. 
there's another 10,000 that are exceptionally good. There's another million that are ex- exceptionally good in other places. Go out and find them. And, um, and that's what we've, we've always done. We've never tried to fight the talent war. We just find wonderful people all over the place. And the only way you can do that is if you have a remote working culture where you're not afraid to hire someone who lives 4,000 miles away or seven time zones away. Um, so yeah, we didn't, we weren't pressing here. We didn't see the coming terrible COVID pandemic situation, but um, we, we'd always worked this way and we thought it was a valuable way to work and you know, just another s- skill to have. And I think it makes companies more resilient because look, let's say, let's say you're, you've worked remotely now for two years and you decide your company decides, let, we actually prefer working together. We all have to get back together. Okay, fine. So you pull everyone back into the office and then, and then maybe, maybe the, the building is sold and, uh, and your lease is canceled and you don't have a new office space to work for work out of for a year. Now you're going to feel like, well, we can get by. We're going to be okay because we've learned how to work remotely. Like we have resiliency here. It's not just about pandemics. It can be all sorts of other reasons why you can't get together. And um, I think that's just a good skill for a company to have. Mm. Well, I I think in 2013, it felt like it was um, a radical philosophy, a way of thinking that would never work for most companies. Like you guys are very unique in that you're a software company. You can do things remotely. And you have enough profit margin relative to overhead that you can do whatever you want. And, and we saw the resistance at the beginning. And then, and then acceptance and adaptation afterwards where gigantic corporations were saying, uh, moving forward, we're no longer requiring you to show up to work anymore. And, we're, and they found what you wrote about the, the kind of hypothesis that once people get over it, they're actually more productive and more effective. And you can trust people to do work at home. You need to support them. You have to have systems in place. But it's fascinating to me that it all kind of really played out the way that it was written. Well, the other thing is that to me, it's just it's more respectful at a human level. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're forced to live near where you work, you have to close a lot of options off. Uh, Maybe your partner has to move because they have a job in another city. Maybe they're like, I have some friends who are, who are teachers and, and they're very specific teachers, university teachers in a very specific topic or, or, or subject area. And there's only like three of those departments like across the country. And if a job pops up somewhere in Connecticut, they got to go there to get that job. But their partner, you know, they lived in, I don't know, let's say it's San Diego. And now like someone has to leave their job. Someone has to lose their job because they can't live near where their other job was. So their partner can, it's like, there's so many fundamental life decisions that come with where you work when you're locked into a place. And what's nice about remote working is that you can choose to live your life and live wherever you want within reason. You need to have a certain overlap with your team and everything. Work becomes less influential on your life, even though in some ways it's a, you feel like it has more influence because now you're free to do other things, but that's actually because work has less influence on your life. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Um, now, granted, not everybody can do this. There's many, many jobs. You work in the restaurant industry, you work in a factory, you work um, with manual labor, you assemble things. You can't, you have to be there at the job site to do the thing, obviously. But if you're an information worker or creative or many, 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 many industries now, you know, you can choose to live where you want. If you want to choose to live in a new place, you don't lose your job and the company doesn't lose you. Um, It's just, it's, there's so much good that comes from that. And um, I think people's lives open up. And I think it's nice to have employees who, who don't feel locked down into a certain thing, 
to a certain place anymore. Um, they, they, they feel more, more uh, open to, to, to living the life they want to live. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's good to have employees like that. And it's good to, as a, as a company to, to, to support that. Um, since you can work wherever you want or live wherever you want, where do you choose to live? And this is a question my wife and I ask ourselves all the time. We could be anywhere doing what we do today and no one would be the wiser. So I'm curious, I'm seeing you in a space. I assume it's your home, but I don't know where you are. Where are you? Yeah, so, um, well, I'll tell you where I'm at in a second, but I, I lived in Chicago my whole life, basically. Um, and I went to school in Tucson, Arizona, so I can get out, out of Chicago for a while. And I went back to Chicago afterwards. And then a couple of years ago, actually during during the, the pandemic, my wife and I, and we have two young kids, seven and three. Now they're seven and three. They weren't, of course, back then. They were two years younger. We decided to come out to Southern California, primarily because of the, the pandemic. We felt like schools were going to be shut down in Chicago or we'd be locked in the basement, you know, in, in the winter. And, <laughs> and, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so we felt like, well, at least in a warm climate, we could, and there's many other warm climates, but we, California was something that was appealing to us. We could be outside. Our kids could, you know, maybe school could happen outside. Schools were starting to happen outside. We could spend more time outside and not feel like we were cooped up inside which is what happens in a cold weather city in the winter. You feel cooped up basically, especially with young kids. So um, we came out here and we, we we're staying out here for now. I don't know how long we'll be here. We might be here forever. I'm not sure, but um, um, it was driven by a life decision. And then, um, you know, our work obviously allowed us to do that, which was, which was great. And it wasn't just that because I own the place, I could do it. Any employee could do it. Right. You know, that, that's the other thing. Like you, you can't have these things that, this person can do it. This person can't. That's that just doesn't really pan out. You've got to allow that uh, flexibility to everybody. I know there's been some companies that have allowed like executives to be remote, but not someone else. It's like that that just doesn't work. You, it's either it's all or nothing. Unless, of course, again, um, like you might have a company that has a has retail locations, and people in retail have to be there, but people in corporate don't because they're not customer facing. That's a different story, perhaps. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we're in Southern California at the moment and enjoying the, uh, the weather and the sunshine and, and being outside as frequently as we can be. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you are. Where are you? I'm, I'm in Southern California as well. I'm in the oh. Pacific Palisades. Okay. We'll catch up uh, later. I'm not too far from you. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I was suspicious because I'm like, it's awfully warm and sunny in Chicago today. <laughs> and I was like, you must be somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a question for you because the I, I just noticed this about myself. I, I was mostly working from home, but the there was this option to go into the office and see the team and, and people can come and go as they need. As long as they figure out what they're doing, we don't really care. We have very few manager types. And then the pandemic happened and then now I'm in this weird routine where I'm just at home most of the time. And it's starting to take a toll on me. I do go out for walks. I do exercise. But I think you have probably a head start on all of this because you've been thinking this way and working this way. How do you kind of keep fatigue of like just doing the same thing and not being social with people at, at bay? Yeah, well, first off, the last two years have not been remote work. They've been pandemic work, which is a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because typically with remote work, you could go to a coffee shop right. and hang out, or you can go to a library or a co-working space. You could see your coworkers if they live in similar cities. You know, it, it, over the last two years, I mean, now it's, it's loosening up, but you really couldn't do any of that. So it was it was hard. Yeah. It was extra hard, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of isolation. 
um, very difficult socially, especially for people who are single, who don't have someone else they're close with or able to be close with. It's really, really hard. So hopefully that's going to loosen up here soon. And people are going to be in certain parts of the world it already has, certain states it has. People are going to find out that remote working is actually probably better than it's been over the past couple of years. For me, I, I would do, I take a lot of walks. I have actually, to be honest, I wish someone would start a podcast called Walking and the conversations would all be required. You'd be required to walk. Um, so I, I don't like sitting down and thinking. I don't like mm-hmm. sitting down and talking. I have a hard time with it, actually. I, I prefer to move. So I, I like to move around a lot. I like to think a lot when I'm moving, that kind of thing. So I'll do that. Um, having two young kids, you know, just keeps me very occupied. So I don't actually have a lot of time to see a lot of other people at the moment anyway. But, and I'm, I'm pretty introverted to begin with, so I don't need a lot of social interaction, but I, I do feel when I don't see other people, I feel cooped up. And yeah. I think if I was in a cold weather city, it would feel especially hard. Yeah. So we don't do it right. We're not doing it right now at the company, but we used to do these things where every once a month, pick five random people at the company and send them a, basically a Zoom link like uh, an hour ahead of time. And we would just have five people just randomly chat across the company about stuff, any, anything that's not related to work. And that was a nice way to at least run into other coworkers that you might not normally work with because you're not working with them on a project. But you have some of that social interaction, but of course not in person. It was all remote. So that wasn't, didn't quite satisfy the, the personal thing. But I, I, did, I have found that simply even going for a walk and not interacting with people, but just seeing other people around really helps my mood. Just knowing there's other people out there is is helpful. But I know if you're really extroverted and you need to be with people, it's been especially hard, I would say, over the past couple of years. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you have any tips for this? You, you say you're feeling, you can feel cooped up. I and mean, what do you do? You know, um, I, I took the, the whole self-quarantine thing very seriously. I have elderly parents who live close by. Mm. And I, I think if I got something, I'd be okay. And if even if I didn't recover from it, at least I could live with that because it's just me. But seeing them, I just had to be extra careful. And so it's like, I just pretty much like got locked into routine. So it's been really tough. Mm-hmm. It has been super, really difficult because I'm an introvert, but I feel drained too. Like Zoom is not the same thing as real life. Uh, you know, you can see people, you can hear them, but it's not the same. And so I'm making a point just sometimes just get in the car and just uh, driving with my wife to run errands, even though I'm not doing anything, at least it's just interrupting that pattern because otherwise I'm sitting at this box or walking around the house, but there's not a lot of other places I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the, I know the elderly parents side of it too. So I, I hear all that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's been a weird time, but I think whatever you can do that makes you, you know, everyone has different requirements in terms of interaction and, and what they need to fuel themselves and trying to get closer to that, even if you can't do that exactly, I think is going to, going to be helpful. Just like uh, if there's a heat source, you don't need to be on top of it to feel it. You know, you can be, but the further away you are from it, the less you feel it. But as you get closer right. to it, you start to feel some of that heat. And I think you can you can think about that with people. If you need some of that, I think that's what I would recommend. But yeah, I th- I, I'm hopeful that in the next you know year or so here, we're it's going to be a lot more normal, of course, and and um, we'll be able to uh, to see the people we want to see with and do the things we wanted to do. Right. It seems like that's the case. Okay, so I have a serious question and and a not so serious question for you. Just being mindful of time here. So the serious question is this. It seems like the things that you write about and from what I can gather by watching uh, your videos or listening to you is that you place an importance on just uninterrupted 
time to think, to work, to do whatever you need to do. I think Peter Drucker in his book, The Effective Executive, said it's a priority for an executive to consolidate the largest amount of discretionary time. Okay, so if that's your philosophy, your ethos, what do you do with your time? Like assuming that, you know what, there's no meetings, nobody's bothering me. I noticed no one's messaging you right now. So there's a lot of this discretionary time. What do you do with your time? During work, during the work day, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so um, this is a fundamental tenant uh, at Basecamp, which is I feel like my job is to help people protect their time and attention because it's the thing everyone else wants from each other. And the quality of an hour is incredibly important to me. So there's a bunch of different ways to slice 60 minutes, but the best slice for me is 60 minutes. It's not four 15 minute blocks. It's not two 30 minute blocks. It's 60 minutes straight, uninterrupted stretches of time. What do I do? I, I think I draw, I sketch, um, I, I work on, on new ideas for the products that we're working on. I, I reconsider how we're doing certain things. I write a lot. And those are the kinds of things that I can't do in fragments. Although I will also do them in fragments. Like I'll just, an idea will pop into my head at nine o'clock at night when I'm, you know, just put the kids to bed and like, you know, my wife and I are having a chat and then I have some private time or whatever, like something will pop in my head. So things do just come in in fragments, of course, but I feel like I can't work through those things unless I have long stretches of uninterrupted time. And this is not, again, just a privilege for me because I own the place. This is something that we're very careful about with everybody, which is why at Basecamp, we rarely have any meetings. We don't have what we call presence. So our products don't have a little red or green or yellow dot next to your face showing you if you're available or busy. Like the, the assumption is, is that everyone's busy working on their own thing and you need to respect people's time and attention. So don't reach out and try to grab someone. Um, if you have a question, write it up in long form and post it to Basecamp and let people get back to you when they have a chance versus when you need the answer immediately, unless, of course, it's truly urgent. So downplaying this idea of urgency, this is a cultural thing, though. It's, it's, it's you know, everyone has to sort of believe that urgency is overrated, ASAP is poison, unless it's absolutely, truly necessary, and then you do you do grab someone. So when you go to, more towards asynchronous communication, when there's no expectation of immediate response, people end up having the ability to even have two or three hours to themselves uninterrupted. Maybe then something comes up and you deal with it. But ideally, I want everyone at Basecamp to have an eight-hour day to themselves. And they can decide how they want to spend that with their team and whatnot. But it's not like, well, the, my first half of my day is just absorbed by meetings. And then I've got an hour and then I got another thing and I've got an hour, I got another thing. So I have no time really to really work through things. And so now I'm going to work late at night or on the morning or in the mornings or on the weekends because I don't have any time to do things at work anymore. That's an unhealthy place to be. So we try to push all that, all those distractions to the side and give everybody long stretches of time. And when you have that, you can actually achieve a lot in a little. So we work about 40 hours a week per person at base camp. We're not pulling all-nighters. There's no 70, 80-hour weeks. There's no work, weekend work unless you're on a weekend shift for customer support, something like that. 40 hours a week is plenty of time if you have about eight hours a day to yourself. If you have two hours a day or an hour, it's tough because you had things to do and you can't get them done in that short period of time. When your day is sliced into a billion pieces, it's really hard. So that's a fundamental thing that we're able to get a lot done in a short period of time in a reasonable amount of time because the quality of our hours are high. Mm. And the more of those hours you can stack back to back, like it's kind of a superpower to have three hours yourself straight through. 
that's just something most people don't have. I remember I spoke at a conference a number of years ago. Everything was now a number of years ago, um, conferences. And I just <laughs> asked people like, you know, there's like 600 people in the audience. Like, how, you know, put your hand up if you've had four hours to yourself at work in the past month or something. And like relatively no hand, maybe 5% of the hands, you know, right. that's sad to me. It's sad that people don't have four hours to themselves at work. And so we're trying to make sure that that's like every day's every day at base campus is sort of the aim. Yeah. Of course, different jobs are different. Like if you're in customer service and you're answering tickets, that's a different story, but at least you're not being pulled off in meetings and then also having to answer tickets, you know? Mm -hmm. So we just want to make sure that the thing that you're doing is pretty much your only focus for the day. That's the aim. Mm. You know, I, I, one of the things I, I recognized early in the pandemic was I was exhausted at the end of each day in ways that I wasn't exhausted before. And then it dawned on me like a month and a half into it. Like, why am I so tired? What is going on? Because I was working uninterrupted for eight to 10 hours a day, which I've never had since starting my company. So you, you talk about the quality of the hour. I mean, I would, I would challenge those 5% who raised their hands who said I had four hours of uninterrupted quality work time because man, you could do a lot if you had that kind of time. So even the idea of 40 hours of, you know, do what you need to do. No one's going to interrupt you. That is crazy. Your your effectiveness must be through the roof at that point. Yeah, you actually eight hours. You should be tired at the end of eight hours mm. because you 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 actually work. And by the way, no one's literally working for eight hours. Like yeah. if you're lucky if you get like, let's be honest, like a good four hour day. Really, like, but if you get four un uninterrupted hours, that's equivalent to like someone else working ten hours and spreading their day across a bunch of different things. I mean, like four hours is awesome. And for those who don't think eight hours is enough, just jump on a plane in Chicago and fly to London. That's eight hours and just sit there. And you're going to see how long eight hours is. It's a lot of time. It's an extraordinary amount of time. And again, if you can get half of that uninterrupted and contiguous, you're going to see just how much time that is and how much you can actually literally get done. So the people who work 10 or 12 hour days or 14 hour days, the reason they're doing that is not because there's 14 hours of work to do in a day. It's because their time is spread across so many different things and it's so fragmented that they can't really get into anything. And then the things they have to do do require that kind of time and they, they don't have the moments to do it. So they're just spread. But if you don't have to be spread and you can be condensed, you can get a whole lot of stuff done in a short period of time. Yeah. I just remember after reading your book, I had this thought, people are coming to my office asking me just the dumbest questions. Like, what do you want to do about this? And it was just like a building maintenance thing. I'm like, you decide, you decide. So I had to send an email out to everybody and said, I'd like to try something new. If someone else can answer it, please ask them. And if you feel like you can answer it, you should just do it. And don't worry if it doesn't work out. Okay, we can fix it if it, if it, if it doesn't turn out the way you think. And that made people much more accountable and empowered them to make decisions on your behalf. And things were bumpy at the beginning, but things worked out much better. And so I can just tell you, like, I was able to recapture some of my time because that's where I can actually contribute real value to the company versus, and it felt like this, and it probably was even worse. Every 15 minutes, something was popping up. So I, I couldn't get any work done until like 8 p.m. And I know you're right about that. Yeah, and you know, part of this too is, is, and I, I've suffered from this too, which, which is just like this ego, this sense that like only I can answer that question. Mm. And so I need to be involved in all these answers. And I've, I've consciously tried to step back over the past couple of years and 
just, you know, let other people solve these problems. And they, they always do. And oftentimes are solved better than I can, could have. And even if they're equivalent, whatever, it doesn't even matter. Just like, I don't need to be involved in all these decisions. It's not good for the company. It's not good for me. It's not good for others. You know, let people, let people use their own mind, let people use their own brain, solve their own problems. Of course, I'm here to help if necessary. And others are here to help too, but really trying to step off that. And I think business owners sometimes have a really hard time letting go of feeling important because sometimes there's not a lot for you to do during the day if everyone else is solving problems on their own. And so you feel like you need to get involved. So you're still relevant or important, but really what you're important because you're not involved. You've created a place where people can solve their own problems. That's a really valuable way to build a business. It shouldn't just depend on you. And I think it's hard sometimes for, for people to realize that the business may not depend on them anymore. And that's actually, I think, the enlightened state, the place you want to get to is when you could potentially walk away and everything would be okay. That's where you want to get, even though it might feel scary to get there. Mm. You had mentioned that um, you had these things where you do like a random thing where you pair five people up to talk. Aside from that, what do you do to still feel connected to your team? Because I, I, I'll admit this right now during the last two years, there's some people where I didn't even have a synchronous conversation with and I haven't had one with them for like six months at a time. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's hard. So we used to, even when we work remotely, because we've always pretty much worked remotely, we would always see each other at least twice a year. So we'd fly everybody into Chicago when we actually had an office in Chicago from all over the world and spend two weeks a year together. And that felt like we did one in the spring, usually one in the fall. And that felt like enough FaceTime, even though it was only two weeks, but it was enough high intensity social FaceTime to see everyone, to hang out with everyone, to share a meal, to share a smile, to goof around, that kind of stuff. Like that was good. And we haven't been able to do that for a couple of years. We're actually doing our first one in Miami next month. We're doing it in Miami because it's a good place for people from Europe to get to and a good place for people in the US to get to. So it's kind of a nice central location around the mm -hmm. world. Of course, so we have people in Hong Kong and Australia as well. So it's that's always going to be far. Right. Um, but... And we're doing it, so we're very much looking forward to that. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very intimately involved with building the products that we build. So I, I work with a lot of people on a daily basis, but I don't work with everybody. Mm -hmm. And as we begin to layer in a little bit more leadership, I'm working with fewer people actually because other people are now running groups. For example, like customer service used to report to me and now they report to our COO. Elaine, who just started. So they're reporting to her, not to me anymore. So I don't talk to Chase, who runs customer services often, you know, and that's kind of weird because I'm, I'm pulling back from some of those interactions. So I need to make a conscious effort to reach out to people and just say, hey, I'd love to catch up and, and just chat or something like that. So that's something I think is on you, is on me to do, um, to, to reach out and to be available and to be present um, and, to, and just to catch up with people. So there's that. There's also, we've also instituted some, some, even though we don't have a lot of meetings in the company, we do have a couple team calls a week. So we have a design team call Tuesday mornings and a product team call on Thursday mornings. There's one hour and the whole team gets together and there's no real agenda. We just kind of talk. Maybe something comes up that we're working on, maybe not. And that's been really helpful. That again, doesn't cover the whole company, but it you know it covers more of the company than just the people I work directly with. So I'm involved in some of those. And, um, but yeah, I think ultimately, if you want to interact with people across the company, you just, you have to get out there and do it. It's unlikely that people will come to you 
just because of the inherent power dynamics of an organization. It's just awkward sometimes for someone to go to the owner of the business and say, hey, can we just chat? Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to do that. You as the owner or as the CEO or president or VP or whatever, you have to make that happen. So I think that's, it's on you to do that. Mm. The not so serious question I have for you, and then please feel free to answer this in any which way you want, is I have the three books in front of me, uh, Rework, Remote, and it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And I noticed something because I love the way that you distill information. There are themes, chapters, short bite-sized pieces. I can understand it. And what I really love too, and I have to just say this, is the illustrations that go along with it. Now I noticed something. You have a different illustrator. So the first two books, I think it was the guy, where is it? I wrote it down here somewhere. Mike Rode. Yep. Who illustrated it. And I just, A, I wanted to know your creative process for how you work with an illustrator and why you decided to work with Jason Zimders for the third book. Yeah. Great question. So Mike is awesome. We love Mike so much. So for the first two books, there was actually less, that's funny, there was less text in the books and our publisher required books to be a certain thickness, essentially, a certain number of pages, because the the old school notion is that yeah. if it's not this thick, you can't charge, you know, right. you, you've been through it, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of, you get that. So this newer book, we actually had a lot more to say. Um, and so we needed fewer illustrations. And we also just wanted to change it up. So we mm-hmm. have like, I think there's maybe a dozen illustrations in this book. We used to, I don't know exactly the number and it doesn't have to be crazy at work. The other books would have an illustration per essay. Yeah. And this just has a few scattered throughout. And Jason Zimdars works for us. He's one of our designers. Okay. And I, I discovered that I didn't know this when I hired him, but he's this wildly talented illustrator also. And so we just thought it would be fun since we didn't need as many this time mm-hmm. that we would, we would do this in house. And so we just, we just did that. Nothing against Mike. Mike is a genius and like one of the best illustrators we've ever worked with in a truly honorable, great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, this time we just went in a different direction. I see. Um, but yeah, yeah. But if I would say if anyone wants to hire an illustrator, hire Mike, he's exceptionally good at what he does. And he does these sketch notes. He's just su- super, super good at that. He's really good at translating the idea into a succinct illustration that captures the essence of it, which is the skill. It definitely is a skill and an art form. It is. I'm sorry. I have one quick follow up with you because yeah, you mentioned sure. each. There's an illustration that accompanied each essay. So I'm just trying to like now as as uh, as an aspiring writer myself. Are you writing these essays in real time, like right now, and then you go back and you put them together, and that's how the book gets made? Yeah. So our books historically have been written without knowing we're writing a book. Okay. So we're posting blog posts, just sharing ideas broadly, and then enough of them sort of congeal into this thing like, oh, maybe there's a book here. And so we'll kind of go back through through the last few years worth of posts and ideas and some stuff we've just posted internally, not externally. And we'll begin to compile this stuff. But I'll write some of them and David will write some of them. And we have very different voices, the way we write, different styles. And our styles have diverged even more over the years. So we'll pull all this stuff together and rewrite it all and then add new stuff and have a unified voice. So typically I'll take the first stab at a lot of these essays and then he'll come through and, and add his version of those essays and we'll do this all in base camp and we'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until we feel like we settle on something that we like and we'll move on to the next one. Sometimes he'll take a stab at a few first ones. and But we found that it, it's, it's better for us to initially start with one writer to, to establish a baseline voice have the other writer come in and color that in 
basically, and also add more detail and edit and pull stuff out. And then sort of we we revolve, we start to orbit around this this group of writing and then and then we kind of pull it together. And we do write some original essays for the books, but a lot of them are based, I would say 80% of them are probably from previous things we've written. Um, so, so this next book that we've talked about that we may or may not do will be based on the things we've been writing over the next few years without knowing that we're writing a book, but eventually have enough material where there's something new. However, maybe this next time we'll do it differently. You know, mm -hmm. I know maybe because we're doing everything differently, maybe we'll right. sit down and actually write a book from scratch. But I find that to be an incredibly intimidating process. So I, I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not good at things that are incredibly intimidating. <laughs> well, you've been super consistent so far, even though now you might want to be inconsistent with your consistency in that you talk about this in, in, in a rework about uh, go for small victories versus the big gamble. Instead of doing one 12 week project, make 12 one week projects and writing a book in small moments at a time, I think make it a lot more like I could do this. I, I believe I can do this. And, and you know, and at some point it builds enough momentum where you can actually get through it and finish a book. Yeah. The other thing we talked about doing would be to go back to rework and it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And actually it'd be neat to have the original essay. This is more of a conceptual like art project book, <laughs> have the original essay. Yeah. And then the new essay five years later, do we still agree with this? Do we not? What would we change about this? Why do we change it? So yeah. it'd be neat to have a sort of a look back, a before and after or, or before and present, I should say, version of some of these things. I don't know what we're going to do, but there's a neat idea in there somewhere. That is really cool. It's very kind of today because it's like the duet on TikTok where you have the original and then your response to that. And sometimes it's just a reaction and the reaction is really interesting and they're not even adding much, but seeing those two juxtaposed together is really cool. Yeah. Like there's some stuff I've, I've read that we wrote. I don't remember exactly which essays it was, but I'd read them back today and I go, eh, not so much. I'm mm. not sure I agree with that anymore. Mm -hmm. And you should change your mind. Right. I mean, <laughs> how can you grow up and not change your mind? Um, so I, I think it'd be fun to just to admit like the, the changes we've, we've made and why we've made them and how they may have been appropriate then, but they're not now, or there's a new context or a new point of view that we have or a new belief or whatever, or it's not even that we were wrong about something before. It's just like things have changed. Times have changed. We have changed. Here's where we are today. So that could be a fun thing. Maybe that's an online thing. Maybe it's not, maybe it's too conceptual as a book. I, I don't really know, but it'd be fun to, to revisit some of that stuff. You could definitely do that as a video project. You could read the passage and you could split and you say, well, not so much anymore. And then tell us what you think now. That'd be a really cool thing to see. That's creative. I, I love that. That'd be a fun. It's so funny when I hear, so when I hear that, I go, oh, that's hard. That's going to be hard. And then I, I immediately talk myself out of it, but it's such a good, clever idea that I, I just, I hate sometimes that I talk myself out of things that are going to be hard to do. Like, I'm like, <laughs> think about all the production I have to do. And it's split, you know, it's like, ah, oh. it's like, is there a simpler version of that? This is always what comes to me. Mm -hmm. And then maybe sometimes there isn't. And like your idea that you just shared is the right, is the right way to do that. And we should, so maybe the, the best way to approach this as a project is I just do it once. Let's take one essay. Mm. How can I just do that with one versus the intimidating factor of like the whole book before and after video? It's like, oh, right. I can never do that. But how do we break it down into one thing and see if it's actually enjoyable mm. or, 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 or valuable? So that's kind of the way I would uh, approach that. But I love the idea. It's a great one. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you on TikTok. I noticed that you, you, you were on Clubhouse for a minute and I was listening to you and I enjoyed that. Uh, are you planning on making more media? 
So I, I would do these things on Twitter for, for, for a while called Ask JF, which were these, um, Twitter has this really wonderful app called Twitter VIT, very important tweeters, I guess, or Twitterers or whatever they would call it. And it's, it's, it's only available to some people. I got on the list somehow and it's a, it's a Q and a app where people can tag you or tag something like ask JF. And then in the, and this Twitter VIT app, I get a list of all the questions you can respond with video. So I was doing these Q and a things because I really like live Q and a spontaneous stuff. And my friends like, you should be doing this on TikTok, And, and, and I'm, I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I should. I'd like to do more Q and A's, but the TikTok workflow is not as clean as the Twitter workflow, but I've kind of soured on Twitter as a, as a platform. It, I don't feel good when I go there. Mm. It, it makes me, I feel like it's just, I'm walking into a stadium where everyone's yelling at each other in, in, even if like I have headphones on where I can't hear the yelling for a moment, I just, I don't want to be in there. So TikTok could be a good place because I would like to do more video. I'd like, like to do more Q and A. I'd like to do more interactive stuff. Um, I'd also like to do more live streaming. I, I, I was doing some of that for a while got, got sidetracked, but, um, I'd like to, I think we've, we've fallen off there and we, we should probably pick that back up. Um, it's something I'd like to get into some more. So, yeah. Mm. Well, I've enjoyed the bits that I've been able to catch live. So I encourage you to do it. Thank you. And not that you need my help, but if there's anything you need help with in terms of the video part, I'd be happy to help you. I let's talk about that Okay. because yeah, let's just catch up about that separately. Okay. It'd be a fun project. Well, Jason, um, I know that time is very precious for you and you've given me more than one hour chunk of your time. And I'm just honored and thrilled to have this conversation. I can't wait to share this with our audience. I, I just genuinely just really appreciate you, man. Well, thank you. Me too. And this, uh, it's hard to imagine a better way to spend an hour and 15 minutes than, than to chat with you about these these topics. And I hope this is uh, this is useful for your audience and as I've mentioned, I really, really love what you're doing. And it's been great to finally meet you and, and chat. So thanks for uh, having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah. If people want to find out more about you, where do they go? Well, um, it's funny. I, I would say Twitter normally, but I'm not really <laughs> there as much anymore. You just Twitter rant. But, but if you go to, if you go to um, world.hey.com yeah. slash Jason. So world.hey.com slash Jason, J-A-S-O-N. That's where I'm doing a lot of my publishing these days. Mm -hmm. um, and you could sign up for my newsletter there and I write something once a week, maybe, you know, so it's, you won't get slammed. So there, there's there. LinkedIn, I'm doing a little bit more writing too. LinkedIn feels like a little bit more of a positive place these days. Yeah. Um, it's actually interesting. LinkedIn feels like it's having a bit of a resurgence. I think because so much of social media is quite negative, LinkedIn doesn't have that. It, it doesn't seem to have that. It seems to be a pretty positive place. So I'm enjoying there. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then, um, you know, check us out basecamp.com, hey.com. And I will tell you this, keep an eye on 37signals.com as well. Sounds like coming back? Let's just say maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, we'll, we'll talk about that again another time I say, but, yeah. but yeah, so 37signals.com is, is something to keep an eye on. Y you know, you'll be watching it for a while. Nothing will be happening, but at some point something's going to happen there. I like that. We'll end with the tease and to be continued. It's a cliffhanger. Yes, Perfect way to, to end continued. the episode, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Hey, this is Jason Freed, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. 
Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.